Hello and welcome to Starting Over with Shannon. This is a podcast about fresh starts, new chapters and embracing change and challenge to become a better version of ourselves and create a better world around us. I'm your host Shannon Jenkins and every week I'll be bringing you a different Starting Over story with tips on how to conquer life's difficulties to find greater joy, meaning and purpose. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Starting Over with Shannon. I just want to send a quick note of praise to those of you who tuned in for this episode. You are likely listening because you are doing some incredibly important healing and self-discovery work, which I know isn't always easy, but I do know that is absolutely worth it. So virtual high five and hug for you all. I hope that's not too cringy. Today's interview is with the lovely Anna Papuano an anxiety counsellor based in Melbourne, Australia. Anna is a beautiful example of somebody who is using their own trauma and hardship to find more meaning, purpose and peace in their lives. She experienced a traumatic roller coaster accident at age 10, which led to significant physical and mental health problems. But she had the courage and the curiosity to start her own healing journey. And now she is helping others on their journeys as well. A counsellor passionate about supporting people to befriend their nervous systems through somatic therapy, breathwork, polyvagal and other holistic practices. She says we need to lead with our nervous systems, start with our body and our mind will then follow. I found this very powerful statement and I think she explains it really beautifully throughout this whole podcast. Some of the other questions we explore are Why is a regulated nervous system so important for our health? What are some symptoms of a dysregulated nervous system and what can we do to bring us back into homeostasis, our state of optimal functioning? How could we support somebody else experiencing anxiety? How could we manage a panic attack? This interview is just full of practical strategies to calm your nervous system and overcome anxiety and of course help somebody else with it too. I hope you really love the conversation. So no further ado, here is my episode with Anna. Anna, thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm very, very happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Shannon. I have been wanting to speak with somebody about anxiety for some time because I know that this is the most prevalent mental health issue that we face across the world and particularly in our Western societies. And it's something I personally have struggled with in the past. And I think that we need to reduce the stigma around this, particularly. I actually had somebody message me on Instagram last night because I was asking my audience whether they had any particular questions to ask you. And I had such a heartwarming message from somebody who, uh, a guy probably around 30 years old, who said, I want to remain anonymous in this, but I've actually suffered with anxiety for my whole life since I was basically 10. I've hidden it really well, but I, he recognizes how debilitating it has been for him and also for people around him, particularly his children now. And I just wanted to say, you know, for people listening to this, there is no shame. You know, I think this is going to be a space I'm going to 
preach this. I'm sure you are too, Anna. Like there is, there is no shame. We all have our difficulties and I hope that this is going to be a conversation that can give you some practical tools as well as bringing you an authentic, honest, open, vulnerable space in which you can feel supported and loved throughout that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to add on to that, it's, um, I like to say that anxiety is the master of disguise and whether that is like a socio-cultural thing that we've developed over time to kind of hide these things from others and the people that are closest to us, but it really is about having that mask on and, and being the picture of success, but inside struggling. And so, yeah, absolutely. It's, there's absolutely no shame. It's such a natural response that we have that we need to work through. Mm, I agree. And I just want to say in first instance for anyone listening, Anna, your Instagram is great. You know, it's, it's really, it is really wonderful and it is so full of practical tips. I've, that's so clear through everything that you do, something that's quick, easy, simple, memorable that people can take on and and use in their everyday life. So if you don't follow, follow Anna already, I would highly recommend you do so. So let's go over to a little bit about about your story, Anna, because I guess you have chosen yourself to make meaning and to find purpose out of a difficulty for you. And that difficulty was in part anxiety, correct? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And for, for me, like my story, I feel like touches so many stories, like the one that you just brought up before. I started experiencing anxiety and depression when I was 10 years old after I had experienced a roller coaster accident. Um, it was the first time that I was tall enough to go on a roller coaster. I was so excited. And then I ended up being in this quite horrific accident with my sister and, and having um, a long hospital stay and lots of different kind of um, issues physically with with my body and my heart. But what was the kind of lasting effects of that was I felt completely out of place and disconnected from the girl that I was to what I had just been through. And I didn't know what mental health was when I was 10 years old. Like this wasn't a conversation that I'd been having. And so afterwards I come from a a family that is rather closed. And so talking about these things is kind of taboo and it became this yeah, again, something that you put on a mask that you pretend is everything's so fine. Like I go to school, get good grades and do all these things. But internally that, that separation from um, my sense of self, my ability to look after myself, my, my risk taking kind of ventures that I would do to feel something outside of the pain that I was feeling. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the catalyst for my whole journey was being in a, a roller coaster accident when I was 10 years old, but it's kind of crazy. That is. And you know what? When you first told me you were in a roller coaster accident, I thought you were using this metaphorically. You know how we talk about the roller coaster of emotions. I did not think that you actually meant legitimately a roller coaster accident. Can you tell us that seems obviously that is such a major thing to live through? Can you tell me a little bit more about the the accident in particular? Yeah, absolutely. Like um, it was at the Royal Melbourne show and I, I'm sure anyone that's from Melbourne knows the notorious roller coaster, the Mad Max. 
And I, like I said, I was tall enough to go on it for the first time. And so me and my sisters um, went on with my dad. And so it was me and my oldest sister in one cart. And then the cart behind us was my dad and my other sister. And someone was wearing a cap and it kind of flew off and just caused a disruption in like the braking system. So the cart in front of ours got stuck um, on the top of this dip and our cart just kept smashing into the back of this other cart. And it was a strange, strange experience because as someone that had never been on a roller coaster before, I was like, is this still fun? I don't know if this is meant to be happening or not. And um, when it came to the realization that this wasn't meant to be happening, my dad had like climbed down the track of the roller coaster and he turned to me and he said, are you okay? And it was like at that point that I realized how much danger I was in and how difficult this situation was. We were on the top of this roller coaster. They had to build scaffolding. There was like helicopters and everything to get us down. Really? <laughs> and so it was like this huge thing. Um, but as a 10-year-old, I had didn't have a reference point of what was normal, what wasn't normal. So you've got am- ambulance drivers like putting the green whistle in your mouth and I'm spitting it out and trying to move my head around and they're telling me not to move. So it's just this really um, confusing experience all the way to the hospital where I was in the ICU for quite some time. Um, And I couldn't understand why they cut my jacket off me instead of just asking me to take it off, (laughs) like simple things like that, where I just didn't have the mental capacity or the reference point to understand really what was going on. And no one was kind of walking me through that as well. So there was a lot of frustration and anger towards like why we were making this such a big deal at the time and why I had to be in hospital and why I had to miss out on school and why I had to do all these different things that came with that. So what was actually the the medical issue? Was it concussion or what? Yeah, so for me, I had a bruised heart, um, I had, which made my heart beat irregularly and quickly. So it was, I think it was over 220 BPM. Um, and so that there, there was a risk of heart attack. Um, I had a lacerated spleen, dislocated shoulder, um, broken, <laughs> broken ribs. Um, my sister who was sitting behind me in the cart, she fractured her spine. Um, and so there was like quite a lot of physical uh, issues yeah, and, and okay. trauma that came from it. Yeah. Wow. That is very serious. How was your dad? it's interesting because uh, as you can tell by my last name I come from a Greek background and my my dad is the stoic person that shows up and doesn't show emotions and I think for the first time in my life that's when I saw my my dad show emotions in a different capacity and no one prepares parents or anyone in your life to handle situations like that like let alone one child but two of your three children being in an accident Um, and so I think at that point, everyone's just going straight into survival mode and just trying to move into that next step to make sure that everyone's okay. And I think that's part of like the reason why I struggled so much to talk about my experience for so long, because it wasn't talked about. It was like, this happened and then let's move forward with our life. Yeah. Goodness me. What a thing to live through. And at your age as well. You know, at, yeah. ten, at 10 years old. So what was the outcome of this in terms of your health thereafter, not only physical but mental too? Yeah, so I think for me the physical 
side of things was something that I kind of easily bounced back from. Like I had to have my heart checked every year. Um, I have an elevated heart rate and an irregular heartbeat now, but it doesn't impact my life in the same way that the mental aspect did. And I think what really happened was I went from a very innocent, outgoing young woman into a very withdrawn and avoidant and emotional person that didn't necessarily have support systems in place to really walk me through that process or even process what had happened. I wasn't able to go to school for six to eight months afterwards. And then when I was going to school, it was just for a few hours a day. And so I became almost physically on the outside of like my friendship groups and everything as well. And they were all moving forward. And I was kind of stuck at home, not being able to physically move all that much because my heart rate was too high. So that had a knock-on effect. And then I think the more that I withdrew and found that safe space at home, not moving, not doing things, the more um, disconnected from life I became. And so that rupture between like who I thought I was and who I actually was now was causing so much tension internally. And so as I went through my teen years and into my early 20s, I became very rebellious in terms of like taking big risks, but also micromanaging everything in my life. Um, I found it really hard to connect with people, have conversations, talk, make eye contact, Uh, That was my worst nightmare, having to have a a conversation with someone. Um, And it just turned into a really self-destructive space that I was operating in. Like on the outside, picture of success, got really good grades at school, went to uni, did all these things, had jobs. But internally, I felt like no one had ever seen me or hadn't seen me for the past decade. And that was really isolating in those moments as well. Did Did you feel disconnected from yourself as well? Because I'm hearing that you're disconnected from others, you know, very tangibly in terms of the experience that you lived. But was there a part where you felt like you didn't know who you were on some level? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that dissociation of self was really me retreating into the one tiny part of myself that I felt safe in. And so everything felt like a dream. It felt like I was walking through a movie and I would find myself saying things or doing things. And there was this weird, like if you'd hear your voice back again, like when you're playing a recording, It's like you're listening to a recording of yourself instead of it coming from yourself. And so that person is able to go and have conversations and do things, but that doesn't feel authentic and real. And it feels like it's, uh, yeah, like a movie playing out in front of you. And it's a, if anyone's experienced dissociation and derealization, then you know how dreamlike and intangible life can feel in those moments. Mm. So I heard you say before that you wanted to take a lot of risks because that enabled you to feel something. Was it that you felt perpetually rather numb and removed and you desired then to have some kind of feeling, whether good or bad, that made you feel alive and part of the world? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where my understanding of how as human beings, like we often want to feel calm or feel happy, 
But that monotony of just the sameness is not within the human experience, right? And we want to feel the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. So if it meant that I would hurt myself or take drugs in a way that would kind of get me to that elevated state, and then you were feeling terrible about those decisions that you made, then none of it really mattered in the scheme of things because it was something tangible to hold on to a different feeling other than just this plateau of numbness. So what kind of risk-taking behaviours would you would you have taken as an example? You mentioned drugs. So an example of um, some risk-taking behaviours would be uh, as from a young age, I started going out with a fake ID. I would meet older men. I would take drugs. I would skip school. I skipped school for God knows how long, quite a few months before someone caught up on that um, and do these things where I knew that there was a chance that I was going to get caught, but it didn't feel like that was part of the fun of it, obviously. And as a teenager, this is very common experience, but taking it to the end degree of pushing the boundaries in every way, shape or form, all while kind of lying to yourself that it's okay to do these things or that you're not lying to other people and getting very good at lying to other people and making up things to the point where you believe them. So I think at one point I had this realization when I was 16, I was like, am I a pathological liar? Because I was so good at just saying what other people wanted to hear without actually batting an eyelid or even thinking that it wasn't true anymore. So you get so good at kind of kidding yourself or faking and it becomes the reality of yourself. And that in itself is very detaching because sooner or later you don't feel like you're actually you anymore. You're just a mirage or a front of who you are. Mm. So I would imagine that there was a big personal development journey for you in terms of reconnecting or discovering who you were internally and flipping the script rather than following that risk-taking exhilaration in terms of actually feeling something, seeking that internally within. Yeah. What, what was part of that journey for you? Did it come from a rock bottom moment or an experience that you took too far? Well, I think... Rock bottom is my favorite place for anyone to end up because that is solid ground and you can work your way back up off of that. And for me, I, like I've hit rock bottom so many times, but my kind of final rock bottom point for me was in 2016 when I had just met my now husband. Uh, we'd just been talking for a few months. It was New Year's Eve. I was working at a pizza restaurant by myself with my boss because no one else showed up for the shift. And I got home at about 12.30 and no one had messaged or sent sent a happy new year or just seen how you're going or anything like that. And it all just kind of hit me at once. And just a, a trigger warning in terms of like suicidal ideation, that was a point for me where I, for many months beforehand, felt like I wasn't quite living. I was I was just kind of existing in this space. I wasn't doing anything amazing with my life. And it got to that point where I was like, well, no one really even knows that I exist. So what's the point in me continuing on? And so I was house sitting. And so I sat in the shower for like three hours on the floor. Um, the water was cold. And then all of a sudden, when I kind of came to this realization, I'm like, all right, well, what are you waiting for? Like, take that next step. Like, why are you here? That's when I started to get emotional and I got really angry and I got really upset at myself. And I 
started to have these realizations like I'm an intelligent human being. Like I've gotten good grades my whole life. I've done all these things that people want me to do. There's something there that has a drive and will to want to be alive, but I can't keep going on in the same way that I'm going on. And so in the the early hours of uh, the New Year's Day, I um, kind of made a pact to myself because I'd been seeing psychs and therapists and people for years and just banging my head against the wall that, okay, this hasn't been working, but it doesn't mean that you're not working. It just means that you need to find something else that works for you. So what does work for you? And for me, that was exercise. And so I booked myself in to go to the jujitsu gym that I was at. And that just started like the catalyst of me falling forward and taking that next step and learning as much as I could that was kind of outside of what I'd already tried and hated for the past 10 to 13 years of my life. Mm. Would you say that you definitely had anxiety and this was something that was very present that you had to work through that was part of your own healing journey in this? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't be here and talking about anxiety in this way if I hadn't have had those experiences. It's something that I feel like is a part of me, but also I can detach from a little bit now in understanding how it happens and what's going on in the body and why I reacted the way that I did to the experiences that I had throughout my life, for sure. So can you tell me a little bit about what anxiety was like for you? Did you have panic attacks? How did you feel in your body? What implications did that have in your personal relationships? Yeah. So on a personal level, for me, it was very physical. I would lose feeling in my fingers and my toes. So that tingling sensation, kind of like pins and needles, uh, the open mouth breathing, the heart palpitations. And that was always exacerbated by me or almost kind of glossed over by me because I was like, oh, I've got had a had an accident that impacted my heart, but all of these things played into each other, Uh, gut health issues, inflammation issues. Um, Like if I look at a photo of myself from 10 years ago, my face is completely different and that was just all due to gut health and inflammation issues that were kind of being um, spiralling upwards by all of the different factors that came in with anxiety. The what-if thoughts, the endless need to control absolutely everything. Like for me, that manifested as notebooks full of plans and five-year, 10-year plans, every little detail that would happen. I couldn't be spontaneous. It was really hard to um, have plans change. And that was a real, really big trigger for me. If someone invited me out and then they said, oh, I'm going to be 10 minutes late or can we change to another day? That was like the worst thing possible for me because I couldn't mitigate for the unknown that was happening in in my life. And um, so there's just so many different symptoms of anxiety and then the withdrawal. So those things kind of play into the fight and flight side of things and then the freeze side of things. Would I would be disappearing for months on end and just completely shut down in my room. Um, my room became my cave that I would live in. It was my safe space. And then you'd come, you'd pop back out again and you'd socialize a little bit. But it was really hard to be vulnerable when you don't feel seen by other people or even have conversations with someone when you don't feel like they they understand anything that you can possibly be going through. And so that withdrawal and avoidance of the unknown, of conflict, of potential things that could happen in your life, that was a huge part for me as well. And so 
in relationships that came as not having any conflict and then having a giant blow up because you can't bottle up the issues that you're having for so long. Um, also playing the kind of like cool girl or I, I just go with the flow type of persona because you put your needs below someone else's um, and you really want them to love and adore you and anything outside or what you think is outside of that might scare them away, for example. So that led to a lot of relationships where you're just doing what the other person wants to do. And then by the end of it, you're like, I don't know who I am anymore. Um, and it, you have to start this process over and over again to learn who you are. So I think like people pleasing and all of those things come into um, effect when we have the foreign response and try to keep ourselves safe interpersonally as well. Um, really basically every symptom that we can talk about is, is all under the anxiety umbrella for sure. Mm. I'm remembering now one of your reels where I think you said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a go with the flow kind of person, but what time does the flow start? <laughs> <laughs> I'm hearing yeah. this. I mean, I loved that. It was amusing, obviously, but like this desire to control, this desire to control what happens around you in order to feel safe. But of course, that's never going to happen because the majority of what you experience in life <laughs> is outside of your control. Yes. It reminds yeah. me of a part in a book called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. I don't know if you've read this, but it is one of the most powerful books in spirituality and healing and self-development work that I have ever read. And one of the points that he makes in this is that he uses the analogy of us having a thorn in our side. We have a, like a rose thorn, picture that. And it's something that you carry, it's buried into your skin it's painful, but it's not painful if you don't move. It's not painful if you don't touch it. It's not painful if somebody else doesn't touch it. But instead of removing that thorn, instead in life, you try to either prevent somebody from touching it or you try to cover it up. You wrap a bandage around it. You add some extra padding. But that's not the answer and it's especially not the long-term answer. And it's making me think here in terms of what you're describing, in terms of trying to control the things that you're facing in your life, you are inevitably going to fall down. And in reality, you need to take steps to be able to remove that thorn. Yeah, I love that analogy. It's a good one, isn't it? I it's it's one I've remembered. It spoke to me a lot, and I could obviously recognize ways in which I was doing that in my in my own life. And I think many people will be able to identify that as well. So for you, before we go on to the part about other people and what you're doing now with your work, what did removing the thorn look like for you? <laughs> oh, it's it's an ongoing process, and I. I can safely say now that I don't experience anxiety and depression in the same way that I did experience anxiety and depression. Um, I felt like there was no blueprint in front of me to know what to do. So it was a, a lot of falling down, a lot of experimentation, a lot of trying to figure this stuff out for myself. I studied psychology and then, um, that was kind of the catalyst for me being like, yeah, this is the stuff that I've been doing for years and years, but it hasn't helped me. So what's outside of this? And so the kind of first step that I took was when I had a, a professor come in and talk about the, the gut brain um, connection. Um, and that really started me going, 
oh, what I eat impacts the way in which I'm feeling. Okay, let's have a look at that. And so getting very curious about nutrition, getting very curious about biohacking, getting very curious about those things. And I think for me, that was a good starting point because that gave me a little bit of traction in starting to feel better. But then noticing that I still had the same kind of anxious tics or the same triggers. Um, So then it was just a... very much falling flat on my face over and over again, finding people and things that resonated with me, whether it was just one word that I heard. So I heard polyvagal once a few years ago. What's polyvagal? Okay, I'm going to go and learn about polyvagal theory and become a polyvagal uh, therapist and understand all of these different things that come from Peter Levine and Bessel van der Kolk and how can I bring these two things together And then it was somatic therapy. Okay, well, how does moving make me feel? I know that when I exercise, I feel really good. So is there something to that? And then exploring that and then becoming a somatic therapist. And for me, I feel like a bit of a bower bird in that I collect things as I'm going through life. And I I voraciously want to understand how our brain and body are intertwined and what that actually looks like and how that translates in real time. Um, for people to experience as well. I'm a big believer that you have to feel better physically in some capacity before you can take that next step. Um, If you don't feel good, you're not going to make good decisions for yourself. You're never going to be able to tackle the monster that lies beneath the surface. Um, And so that's where it's bringing together all of these different bits and pieces. For me, that was really just like a patchwork and just trying to like figure out where things go and how they work in together and what that looks like coming together holistically. So yeah, it's not a very linear pathway or for what that looked like for me, but um, just knowing how how to be curious again about life and how to be curious again about myself and understanding that if it doesn't work, it doesn't mean that it's a reflection of me and it's not a reflection that I'm broken. It just means that it doesn't work for me and there's always other things that I can try. So that's I always encourage people to be the mad scientists in their life and have lots of N equals one experiments and learn as much as they can um, because it's all just data that you can take in and then process in different ways for yourself that is such an important takeaway I really love that pick and pick and mix get selective and of course there are going to be things that speak to you and things that don't and people within that as well you know people could be having saying the same message but in a different way that you resonate with more or less and I think you've got to follow those things and of course these healing journeys are lifelong and there will be things that trigger you again and knowing that you know, if you fall off the bandwagon, so to speak, that's completely normal. Just see that as a bit of a signpost to get back on track and ask for the support that when you need it and and so forth. Yeah. But you are the expert on this, not me. So <laughs> <laughs> no, you've, everyone, everyone who has been through their own experiences is an expert on it. And I think that's why it's really important because we sometimes give away our power to other people. But ultimately, no one has gone through the experiences that you've gone through. I haven't read Untethered Soul. You took away a beautiful analogy from that. I'm sure so many other things. So you, you're just as much of an expert as I am. Thank you. That's, that's very kind. I would like to do a little part on nervous system regulation. This was something that people, I did a little poll on my Instagram, what do you want to hear the most? And nervous system regulation was was the clear winner. So let's go to the basic here and asking, what actually is our nervous system? 
<laughs> so your nervous system is basically, I think of it like a tree with all of the branches going through it. So it's made up of your central nervous system, your autonomic nervous system, your peripheral nervous system, and all of these different parts um, kind of monitor all how your organs are going. They send feedback to your brain. But Interestingly enough, your nervous system is so intuitive and it listens to the outside world through neuroception and it also listens to the internal world through interoception. And so through these two processes, this is how we understand how we're safe in the world, right? So if you are in an environment and you see something flash past in the peripheral vision, your nervous system has to be able to notice that even though subconsciously you may have not noticed that and then prepare your body to move in a way so it's really based on an evolutionarily um beautiful way of keeping ourselves safe and making sure that we can maintain homeostasis and which is within what? this what is that so it's just the basic functioning of all of our um, organs and so that basically we're running on autopilot. You don't have to think about breathing. You don't have to think about your heartbeat or blood pressure. That's all part of homeostasis. So homeostatic processes are just things that keep you alive and that is part of your nervous system's job to maintain homeostasis within your body as well. So that is like the the baseline comfortable optimal functioning level before you start your nervous system starts being would you say dysregulated by things that we perceive as being uh, frightening, potentially dangerous? Absolutely. Yeah. So nervous system dysregulation happens probably over the course of your lifetime. And if you think about all of the experiences that you've had and how we once thought trauma was, was uh, you have to be in a war or a car accident or a sexual assault victim or that's not how trauma works. Trauma is really how you respond to an event, right? So if your mum said to you one day, you'll never amount to anything, that can be a traumatic experience to your nervous system because then it shrinks slightly, right? And so it understands that, oh, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to try and go for that next big successful promotion or I'm not going to try and put myself out there because I now have this story within myself that if I do that, then someone's going to turn around and be mean to me or say these horrible things, right? So its whole job as your nervous system is to protect you. And it does this through survival responses like fight, flight, flee, and fawn responses or freeze responses, um, as well as fawn. By learning through this neuroception, co-regulation, how you feel safe amongst other people, how you are received by other people and then it intuitively tries to figure out the best way to handle those situations. So if you are a female and you have an abusive partner, for example, the fawn response is a really common response because you try to complement and appease your partner so that you mitigate the effects or the potential for danger, right? Mm. But if you're a man, then you're more likely go, to go into the fight mode right and be able to kind of like puff your chest up and make yourself look intimidating to try and protect yourself so it's it's very intuitive and it it's different for every single person some people might find themselves in the disconnected freeze or shut down some people might find themselves in the fight or flight and um, some people might find themselves fawning and some people might find themselves doing all of these different things for me, I was very combative. I was a very combative person. I loved to start arguments because that's how it felt 
best for me. I felt connection with other people when I would see emotions coming out of their face. When everything was all hunky-dory, that's when my brain would go, something's wrong, right? And so it, we have these kind of um, mistaken pathways or perceive, p- perceptions of the world and everyone's going to have different distortions that go on within them and your nervous system is going to only reinforce that when we continue to play out those scenarios in our lives as well. So it's kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy. I like the emphasis on the fawn response because I think we, people who aren't perhaps familiar with this uh, area of knowledge will often have heard anecdotally of the fight flight well fight or flight response but also knowing that freeze is there too but this idea of fawn I think is being spoken about more and it's coming out a lot in this kind of personal development literature as well recognizing that people pleasing behaviors are mm. a response to our environment that doesn't necessarily serve us and it's something we would benefit from from overcoming for our own yeah. well-being and authenticity and and so on. What are some of the symptoms of a dysregulated nervous system? What, can, if, yeah. what kind of things can people recognize in themselves and be like, oh yeah, okay, maybe uh, I have got that going on right now. Yeah, well, I'd say that most people after going through COVID and everything that happened over the past few years, most people probably do have a somewhat dysregulated nervous system. Some of the really common symptoms are not being able to relax. Like if you find yourself wanting to stay busy or needing to have music on the background or the TV on, and you just, every time you sit down, you like a bit antsy and amped up and you can't relax. That's a really good sign. Um, gastrointestinal distress is a really common one. So Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, autoimmune conditions. Um, if you have bowel, your bowel movements are too quick or too too slow and you feel sluggish, these can all be a sign of dysregulated nervous system. Um, when you're really quick to react to people, that's a really good sign that your nervous system is dysregulated because you're getting pushed into that activated state. Um, the same is if you find yourself underreacting to things, you get great news and you don't feel anything. It's called anhedonia, where you lose pleasure in the things that you once found pleasurable in your life. Um, that's a really good sign of nervous system dysregulation. Physical symptoms, tightness in your your chest or neck and shoulders, back, chronic pain, those types of things, along with obviously your thoughts and the kind of unending what-if scenarios or fear of the unknown. There's so many different ways to look at it, but basically your nervous system has is the foundation of your health and so if you're unhealthy or you're having certain things happen in your life then that is a sign that your nervous system is in a dysregulated state as well thanks that's a brilliant response and i really like how you're mentioning both the mental and the physical symptoms and there is greater recognition now that it is both of those things and that we need to have more of a holistic understanding of our health and more of a holistic approach also to our healing So with that in mind, what would you suggest are ways that people could start to regulate their nervous system, whether that be somebody who has, you know, diagnosed generalized anxiety disorder or whether that is somebody who is who doesn't have that, but instead Mm -hmm. can feel like, oh, okay, I'm I'm seeing that right now I need every night to have a drink, just one to take the edge off pointing to what you're saying about relaxing. What are some of the things that strategies that people could do to bring their nervous system back into regulation or regulated state? 
So I want everyone to think of your nervous system like a muscle that you need to train. So if you're going to the gym or you're exercising, well, fundamentally, we all know that we need to exercise to keep ourselves fit and healthy. Your nervous system is no different and it needs that constant um, and consistent uh, nourishment and notice and and ability to work through certain things. Um, But it's really important that we're starting to be more proactive. So regardless of whether you think I'm fine or whether you're in the chronic anxiety or generalized anxiety disorder camp, that it all starts with the very basics of understanding how your nervous system is impacted by what you put into your body and how you move through your day. So every single, I think these are probably the simplest things that you can do to start to regulate your nervous system. Salt is one of the most abundant and essential nutrients for the cells in the body to function and for your mitochondria to function. And so every morning I start my morning with a glass of warm, salty water, because if you have been sleeping overnight, then you are going to be dehydrated in the morning. And often it's not water that we need, but it is salt that we need for ourselves to function um, optimally. So even just putting like half a teaspoon of salt into some water in the morning can start to kick the the nervous system into knowing that, hey, I'm okay. I've got all the things that I need to keep moving throughout the day. So salt water is probably the best one. Yeah. I just, that is actually really surprising. I'm not sure if anyone listening to that right now is other than thinking that's disgusting, (laughs) (laughs) is thinking, but I thought that we're regularly told that we should reduce our sodium intake and we have more than enough in our diet. So why would somebody be suggesting that I need to go gobble some ocean water? (laughs) (laughs) Well, just like uh, the sugar industry kind of hijacked and said that sugar was really good, um, we're starting to see a a pattern and um, unwind some of the damage that was done in the 70s and 80s in terms of scientific research that goes to how the body's functioning. So we were told that fat and salt are really bad for us, but you can eat cup, like complex and processed carbohydrates and, and sugars and that's okay. So salt is the foundation of how your cells send messages to each other. It is how your brain functions. It is how absolutely everything in your body works to its optimal uh, uh, effect. And so if you are just putting like a bit of salt on your food, it's not enough for your body to really work with. And so every single bit of your body internally, if you think of the cytoplasm of a cell, that's salty water inside of that, right? And so if you think about how much you're breathing and moving and talking and doing in your day and sleeping, that takes up so much oxygen and every breath that you expel is a little bit of salt that you're getting rid of from your body as well. So if you're in this constant state of deficiency and you are someone that experiences anxiety, your nervous system and vagus nerve are going to be saying, hey, something's wrong, but they can't verbalize that. And so it's going to come across as you being activated or dysregulated. But in reality, you're just in a dehydrated state. You're not giving your body what you actually need in those moments. Mm. Interesting. (laughs) Unexpected. (laughs) What are some other strategies? (laughs) Absolutely. So next one is my favorite thing to do in the morning, which is movement. And this is going to look different for everybody, but my absolute favorite thing to do is to shake your body out. So if you are someone that lives in a high stress environment that goes to a nine to five job that has anxiety, your like levels of adrenaline and cortisol are going to be elevated quite a lot of the time. So 
having movements like vigorous movements like shaking or dancing are a really good way to expel your excess adrenaline from your body and create a, a sense of safety within because you're saying it's okay to process this in a frenetic movement and then we're going to move forward in a much more calm way. So definitely movement every single morning. I have a boogie or a shake out as much as possible. And then sunshine is obviously my next favorite thing to do because it resets your circadian rhythm. If you can get into the sun for five to 10 minutes in the morning, then you're going to help your body actually sleep in a much more functional way and get deeper quality sleep. Gargling is another really great one to do. So gargling water because your vagus nerve actually runs down either side of your neck and your vagus nerve is made up of 75% of your parasympathetic nervous system. So if you create this vibration through gargling water, then it activates your vagus nerve and increases your heart rate variability. I know some people hate gargling, so humming or singing is a really good way to do that as well or making like, you know, when you're a kid and you blow raspberries, blowing raspberries is a good way to do that too. Um, And the last one I wanted to share was um, something called the Basic Exercise by Stanley Rosenberg, and this is really uh, a beautiful way to kind of start to bring your nervous system back into a a sense of safety and calm. And you can do this by placing your hands behind your head, um, interlacing your fingers and just keeping your head facing forward. And all you're going to do is move your eyes to the right and then hold for a minute. And then you bring them back to the center and then to the left and you hold that for a minute. So this helps kind of release the myofascial muscles as well as activate the vagus nerve as well as bilateral movement and starts to teach your body how to come out of that either frozen or activated state through all of these different things happening in your neck muscles, in your eyes, um, and your hands being above your head as well, releases pressure on your spine. So for anyone who wants to learn about the basic exercise, it's a beautiful way to start, but you might feel a bit dizzy the first time you do it. So try it lying down if that's you and just try and do it consistently every day for a week and see how you're feeling afterwards. I love that. That is so fascinating. And it also feels like give us permission to have some kind of joy and lightheartedness. So what is what's the new the new morning routine? Put on a great tune, sing it because your nervous system doesn't care about whether you're a great singer or not. So just get going. Your, your neighbors might, but you know. <laughs> my you my husband definitely minds. I I'm like the most out of tone singer, but I don't care. I just like about about anything out. So get on it. Don't worry about what other people think about you. It's all for in the name of nervous system regulation. Yeah, I love it. And I'm actually thinking of a person that I mentioned at the start who messaged me and said that, you know, he he has had anxiety for a long time and he's a bit worried that his kids are picking up on that and having their own symptoms. Put on a tune in the morning. That could be something the whole family could do, right? I know we all have different personal circumstances, but I'm just imagining for that particular person, put a song on in the morning, have a sing, have a dance, shake your hands out, be silly, especially with kids that's even easier to do in ways, isn't it? Because they give you permission to press your silly button. (laughs) I actually had a a mother send me a message on Instagram. She said, "Uh, my 12-year-old's looking at me like I'm crazy right now because I put on a song this morning. I was shaking my hands out and then gargling water. And I was like, they'll come around to it because that's how you show, like that's how you mirror 
um, and co-regulate with your family or whoever's around you for demonstrating and then they're like, all right, I'll have fun with you as well. So it's yeah. a good thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely. I have a question now about breath work. So we there's a lot more research that's being spoken about, a lot more the importance and the, really the foundational need to take good breaths. I mean, we know this, but now yeah. in terms of it being a strategy that we can use to regulate our nervous system, minimize anxiety, introduce more calm, the homeostasis mechanism you're describing earlier. What are some of the breathwork techniques that you would suggest that your clients use? Yeah, so one of my absolute favorite, there's probably two that are my favorite. So the first one is called the physiological sigh. So about every five minutes or so, you subconsciously take a sigh, which reinflates the alveoli in your lungs. And this extra exchange of CO2 and oxygen helps activate your parasympathetic nervous system. So you can mimic this by doing a one inhale through your nose and then one inhale again and then a long exhale. And so you really, you want to try and extend your exhale like six to eight seconds, but be quite like almost aggressive on those inhales. Like, And that's in through our nose and out through our mouth. That's right. Yeah. And um, the second one that one of my clients lovingly called uh, thumb balloons, um, but the real scientific term is Valsalva maneuver. Um, and they use this in hospitals to re- reduce people's heart rate when it's really high. Um, and it's really good if you experience panic attacks or anxiety attacks, or you're just feeling like you're kind of getting that tightness in your chest. Um, so you can bring your hands together and your thumbs outwards. So you've clasped your hands together with your thumbs pointing out and you're going to blow on your thumbs as if you're trying to blow up a balloon, but there's nowhere for the oxygen to go. So your face gets huge like a puff of fish. So I'm going to show for the people listening, it's basically your cheeks are going to puff out and you're going to push your breath onto your thumbs as much as possible. So what this looks like is and it's kind of funny to do as so, well. Yeah. So the yeah. air doesn't escape the air as such, so it will stay yes. in your mouth. Okay. Yeah. So you want to make your cheeks as big as possible. And it's this pressure because we have our vagus nerve running through our mouth here. It's this pressure in our mouth. But also when you push your exhale, but you're not actually exhaling, you expand your chest cavity, which then it compresses your vagus nerve and lowers your heart rate because your vagus nerve is uh, one of the main indicators. It tells your heart either to speed up or slow down. So if you activate it, then it's going to slow your heart rate down. So it's really, really helpful if you experience um, panic attacks or anxiety attacks. And instead of doing deep breathing, which can exacerbate panic attacks, do the thumb balloons or the Valsalva maneuver um, because it will help ro- lower your heart rate really quickly. Thank you. That's very, very helpful. I'm hearing a lot that you're speaking about our vagus nerve and you mentioned previously polyvagal theory. I was wondering if you could just break that down a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So the vagus nerve is our 10th cranial nerve and it runs from our brainstem all the way through to our gut and our lower colon. And basically its job is to 
tell the brain how every bit of your body in terms of like your organs are actually doing. So for example, yeah, you, you pass bowel movements. It lets it know that everything's good or you're breathing properly or you're um, experiencing joy or happiness and you feel that in your heart. So you can lower your heart rate and feel connected to other people. So it's this communicator of how the body and the brain are doing. And it's a bi-directional pathway that happens. Um, so our brain will send information to our body. And I think this was kind of a turning point for me was um, a lot of the time we're like, oh, change your thoughts, change your life. But your vagus nerve actually sends 80% of information to your brain and your brain only sends 20% of information to your body. So your brain's not actually the the master planner of everything that you're feeling and doing. You're more impacted and um, influenced by how your body is doing, right? So if you can understand that if you can shift how your body is feeling, then you, your thoughts will follow and you'll be able to feel better so that you can think different thoughts. But if you're trying to do it the other way around, um, then it's a much more muddled and difficult experience. And that's really where polyvagal theory kind of cre- was created through Peter Levine. And he kind of observed animals in the wild who were maybe chased by a lion. It was a gazelle that was chased by a lion. Um, and before they could integrate back into the group, they would expel their energy by shaking. And so they kind of saw this process happening. And then if you move that into 21st century, like, society, if you're in a car accident and you see someone shaking, right, you put a blanket on them and you try to stop that process from happening. And if you stop that process from happening, you're not getting that bodily signal back up to your brain that you're actually safe anymore. You've kind of cut that system short. So the polyvagal theory talks about the different systems that we have and how our vagus nerve and nervous system works through our brain and body to really create safety, to create connection, to create all of these different things that are happening inside of us. But you have to allow the process to happen naturally and not try and cut it short. So it's a, it's, it's much more complicated than I just described it should be, but yeah. Of course, the so things always are, but I think especially on a podcast, we like hearing those kind of key takeaways and often practical strategies that we can go to implement in our life. And what I'm really taking from that, because I'm somebody who speaks quite a lot about taming our thoughts to have a better life as such, mm-hmm. actually hearing you speak really convincingly about this as well, you know, the polyvagal theory and the fact that we actually need to get more connected to our body and perhaps that is the first step. I think that's really powerful you know, and what I'm also hearing is actually quite simple and quick strategies, you know, something yes. to bring to just bring you into that level that you need to be in before you take the next step. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. fascinating. I want to before we wrap up, I just wanted to have a quick note on some social anxiety, because I know that this has been something that is on the uptick, especially as we're reintegrating into so-called normality after this pandemic period, which in which there has been a lot of uncertainty, a lot of consistently changing rules that's led to naturally more anxiety. (laughs) So... I was wondering if you could perhaps suggest what are some of the symptoms of this and then give some strategies about how people can cope. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really interesting the way that I look at what we've just experienced as a collective as 
almost a collective trauma and when you understand it from that perspective and how people have changed their behaviours, that really is symptomatic of anxiety in the first and foremost. So you will always see people saying that you should go and reach out for support if you've changed your behaviours, if it's impacted your daily life. And I don't know if they've really thought about if they enforce people changing their behaviours and how that impacts their daily life and then the knock-on effect backwards to your mental health and well-being. So really common signs of uh, social anxiety um, are very similar to to anxiety as a whole, but that um, trying to control the outcomes, trying to mitigate for potential uh, risks or doing pe- what people want you to do without actually wanting to do those things. So a very common thing that comes up is I don't really want to go out for drinks, but everyone's doing it and they might think that I'm not fun anymore if I do it, right? So finding yourself kind of moving through, um, pushing over your own boundaries to fit in with other people, but also then when you're out with other people, not feeling that connected or being stuck inside your head when you're in those spaces. And that can always be accompanied by physical symptoms. You might just experience cognitive symptoms, or you might also experience the racing heart, the sweaty palms, the um, hot flushes or cold flushes. Um, So it's everyone's experience is going to be different and we all have different survival resources that we kind of lean on in those experiences. What I would say is if you feel less inclined to be connected to other people or it's not giving you energy um, where it once was, then that's a good sign that something's kind of shifted within you and you, you might have retreated a little bit or you're relying on survival responses. One of the best things that you can do for social anxiety is really have a kind of ritual that you do with yourself before you leave the house. So for some people that might be shaking your body out, releasing a lot of that excess adrenaline or doing things like progressive muscle relaxation. So tensing and releasing your muscles to send feedback that this is what calm feels like. This is what calm feels like. Um, If you're out and you're experiencing dry mouth and you can't talk properly and things are just not working the way that you want them to do, then um, having sour or salty foods or chewing gums can activate salivation, which is part of your vagus nerves uh, processes. It, it regulates that. So if you can make yourself salivate, even by thinking about a lemon, then you're going to start that process of parasympathetic activation and start to calm down. Um, proprioceptive input, so weighted input, has a calming and organizing effect on the brain. So you can push against a wall, like you're trying to push it over. Um, You can pick up your grocery bags. You can have a firm hug. Chewing also is proprioceptive input. Um, But just practicing kind of these tools when you're feeling calm before you're out helps you access them when you're in that heightened state as well. Mm, That's fascinating because I think one thing that I've or a few things actually that I've observed as falling potentially under this social anxiety um, umbrella, even if it's on a mild scale, could be quickly cancelling before Mm -hmm. because you're like, oh, I can't, you know, it's coming up. Like, oh, I'm supposed to go out tonight. I'm not feeling it. And you're like, oh, I can't make it. Or, you know, I have a flood or (laughs) I don't know, whatever excuse people make up. (laughs) Or when they're actually out going to the bathroom a lot finding the nearest toilet, checking the phone, using all the time notifications and then using the toilet as as an indication for that. (laughs) 
Would you suggest, yeah, yeah, I mean, I have been there. Have you been there? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. How can we, so we've heard a lot about managing, self-soothing, managing our own anxiety. What about helping other people? How can we support someone else? Yeah, and I think this is always a tough one because, you never want to see someone that you care about going through an experience um, that you honestly, there's not that much that you can do in those moments. And I think the most effective thing that you can always do is ask what they want, right? So say, is there anything that you would like me to do for you? And I think breaking down that barrier because so often it's hard to ask for help when you're anxious or depressed or just not mentally in the space to handle whatever's in front of you having someone break down that barrier and saying like I'm here what would you like me to do instead of you having to ask them is a huge help and if you're in an intimate relationship like getting curious about people's reactions and triggers and understanding like oh where did that come from instead of you always blow up at me or you always shut down or you always do this Uh, understanding that we all come from completely different backgrounds, different parenting, different environments, and everyone's going to have different ways of dealing with things. But if you are able to take that step from a place of curiosity and compassion, not uh, what's wrong with you, but I'm here for you, how can I help you? Then that really helps open up the conversation to say, well, actually, maybe I don't need you to do anything, but just be here with me. And I think that's a really powerful thing. And one of my favorite uh, concepts of polyvagal theory is feeling felt, um, that resonance, that kind of soul exchange that you feel with someone when you don't have to speak about things, when you are just able to sit there and connect and know that you're safe, that's where true connection and healing happens. And so, yeah, it Try, try not to give too much advice and try to just sit and allow the person to be as they are. I love that. And, you know, because a lot of the time we don't know how to help other people and we often feel like we should be the ones advising as if somehow yeah. that's the automatic response. And then we don't know what to say. And it's like, oh, and then you throw out some advice, which is often unwelcome anyway. So just knowing that it's okay to just sit there with somebody, be with them in that space and and ask them for for what they need. Beautiful. Let's move to final fast few questions before we wrap up, Anna. So the first question I wanted to ask you is, is there something that you used to believe that you no longer believe? Absolutely. And I absolutely love these questions. Something I used to believe that I no longer believe is that life was for other people to live, whereas now I believe that life is synonymous with healing and healing is synonymous with life. And so going through that process is living and thriving through it as well. Mm, Interesting. Like, so it's not a sign that you're off track or have something to fix. That's just an integral part of the human experience. Yeah. Yeah. Second, what is one quote or affirmation that resonates with you that you would like to share? So one of my all-time favorite quotes um, comes from a book called Anamkara. It is the book of Celtic wisdom by John O'Donohue. And I actually said this quote at my wedding and it's, if you send out goodness from yourself or if you share that which is happy or good within you, it will all come back to you multiplied 10,000 times. In the kingdom of love, there is no competition. There is no possessiveness or control. The more love you give away, the more love you will have. That's beautiful. 
That is very beautiful. I completely agree. And something that I had noticed is that it doesn't always come back to you from the person to whom you give it. Absolutely. And and not to expect it to come back from that person as well. Absolutely. Lastly, what is one piece of advice that you would give to our listeners who may be currently struggling with anxiety? Lead with your nervous system, start with your body and your mind will follow. Love it. Thank you so much today for your time today and all of your practical tips. I think there's a lot of richness in here that people could really, really connect with. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Shannon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for everyone for listening to another episode. I hope that this inspired you to continue your journey of connecting with your inner self, building self-awareness, and quite frankly, living a life full of joy and meaning and purpose. Please share the love by sharing this episode with somebody who you think might be interested or otherwise would love it. And in the meantime, have a wonderful week.